0: My name is Josh, and I am the student pastor here on staff at Highlands. Uh, it's good to see you. From time to time, I get a chance to be able to come up and, and share and just uh, talk about God's word, and so I'm glad to be able to be up here with uh, you all. A few uh, things about me. I have a bunch of different convictions in my life, but one conviction that I hold uh, extremely dear to me uh, is that there is a correct way to load the dishwasher, Okay. <laughs> Uh, there is a method on loading the dishwasher that is right, and there is one that is wrong. Um, and if you believe that I am wrong, I will prove to you that I am right, okay? There is, um, and I believe that there are people around here that you kind of maybe find yourself on one side of the aisle or the other, that, that you know you're right and, um, and you'll hold to it, right? Uh, but you know your method is the best way to be able to, to make the most efficient dishwasher, and uh, make sure that it runs and fits everything as, as needed. Um, we, I have all of these different types of methods in my life, all these different things that kind of fill my life to make uh, my life better in general, right? Uh, maybe there's vacation stuff that I have. that I know that like, if I structure my vacations in such a way and spend my time doing this in this way and um, go here at this time and do this um, then, then I know I'll have a great vacation, uh, maybe when hanging out with other people, you know, like, okay, if I, if I do this method of um, hanging out at this spot and watching this thing and then going here and having dessert here, it's going to be a great night. I had a uh, pastor friend who actually had an Excel spreadsheet of a method that he would lay out that would allow him to essentially see if he uh, would want to go on vacation or not with his family um, so he would factor in the costs, uh, he would factor in the the general fund factor, how long it was going to take to get there, the amount of time that they spent at that specific place, and then he would use that method to be able to understand and know if he's going to enjoy his vacation and whether or not it was worthwhile now, Disney World never made the list, okay? Um, standing in line for hours on end in the hot sun doesn't sound like a fun thing. And so he just, he just nixed it off his list until later on when his kids were older. Um, but we have these kind of methods in our life that, that we maybe intrinsically have within us that create order. They help us feel better. They rid us of anxiety. Like, maybe when you get super anxious, uh, you kind of just know, like, I'm going to go to my phone. I'm going to make myself busy. Maybe when you're lonely, you know who to call up. You know what to watch. Maybe when you're feeling down and depressed, you watch uh, the great British baking show um, or something that's light and fluffy and fun. Like, you know what to go to and what to do. And companies, businesses know this as well. Uh, Our culture, by and large, knows this as well. And um, if you were to, to go and just Google, um, how do I make myself feel better? One of the biggest things that's gonna pop up uh, in our culture, in our world, they're gonna tell you that that meditating could be a big way to make yourself feel better. And I'm not in any way condoning uh, meditating, but it's just interesting. Uh, it, it pops up as one of the steps to help you feel better. In fact, the biggest app, if you just go to your app store and you type in uh, meditation or I don't know, finding joy, whatever, um, one of the biggest apps to do so uh, has 70 million users. And, and they, they promise, they promise this. They say, uh, they're going to help you uh, find joy, make every day happier, and the best of all, find better sleep, right? So who wouldn't want that, right? Apparently, apparently all of us would want that. And all of this could be yours for $12.99 a month, right? Um, who, who, what doesn't sound uh, more relaxing than paying for a meditative episode, right? Um, but we know, we see, we understand that, man, if I, if I do this, if I do this specific aspect, maybe it's fitness or um, relaxing, whatever it is, whatever method we do, we, we want it to cure something within us. We walk through methods, tools, resources to make us feel better, But what I find interesting, at least in my own life, this may be true for you as well, uh, That a lot of times I don't apply that to my spiritual life. And that's probably the most beneficial area to find methods to help structure my life so that I can be around and commune with the Lord more. But typically I'll go into prayer time or I'll go into my Bible reading and um, I'll just wing it. Right, like I'll just start praying to the Lord, uh, just following whatever structure I want, just kind of trying to, to remember whatever I can from any studies that I've done. And I'm just kind of going about prayer just in whatever way possible. And the good news is we don't have to do that. In fact, the Lord gives us, Jesus gives us a method to use when we want to pray. He gives us a way that we can sit before the Lord in the best way possible to be able to relate to him, to sit with him, to to know him and experience him, ask and receive from him in the Lord's prayer. And if there was anything that we were gonna structure our lives around, a method that we were gonna find, surely it should be the most important thing in our life. And that is knowing and living with the Lord. So go ahead and go to Matthew chapter six. It was just read, but Matthew chapter six, we're going to be in verses 11 through 13 this morning. But we've been in this kind of two week mini series called Kingdom Come studying this ultimate method, if you will, of prayer to convene and be with the Lord. We may struggle how to pray, but Jesus is gonna help us understand and know and give us a helpful outline to do so. In week one, Pastor Barry kicked off um, by introducing us to the prayer, looking at the, the first two verses of the prayer. And the way that we kind of structured it out and the way that we saw this prayer break down is in two different ways. In the first section, We see uh, the Father's kingdom and we see his character. We're essentially positioning and posturing ourselves under who the Lord is so that we may then eventually, and this is this week, ask and receive so that we may be able to come before him. And a helpful tool that we found just to kind of walk through this and kind of illustrate it for you um, was this hexagon uh, right back here, just a beautiful hexagon. If you like shapes, there you go. Uh, But essentially you start at the top and you make your way around this, this hexagon. You have the father's character in verse nine, the father's kingdom in verse 10, the father's provision in verse 11, the father's forgiveness in verse 12, the father's guidance in the first part of 13 and the father's protection in the second part. And again, we're gonna focus on, we focused on the top two. I encourage you to go back and listen to Pastor Barry's sermon, but we're now going to focus on 11 through the rest of the chapter as we make our way around. A lot of times we may wonder, like, what can I ask from this holy and righteous God? Jesus is going to share with us today how we ask, what we ask, and ultimately what we will receive. So go to verse 11 in chapter six. The first thing that we see is the Father's provision. The Father's provision. He says here, Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. This is a very interesting illustration that Jesus is using when we're asking for something from the Lord. And in fact, as I was studying here, a sinful part of me kind of felt weird about this word. Like daily bread is boring, right? Like daily bread is, is just like, like you, you would hope and you would want something more from that. Like why did Jesus... Choose daily bread to be the number one thing that we're given from God. This ultimate, mighty, massive creator who has absolutely everything in the palm of his hand is giving us daily bread. Seems interesting. Like my soul, my heart, my, again, my, the, probably the sinful part of me wants it to say at least uh, maybe daily cake. Right, or maybe if you're not a cake person, pie. Right, if you're a big uh, pie person, it fits well. So I, I just want like daily cake from the Lord. I want I want God to to give me. The truck that I always wanted. Like, I want God, when I come into Him in prayer, I want, I want Him to, I want to come to Him in prayer and, and pray for success in everything that I do. That when I, when I just touch things, it just goes well and, and I just am able to see work come to fruition. When, um, when I go to God, I want to be able to pray for my dream home that's designed by Chip and Joanna Gaines, right? Like, just, per, like, they actually come and, and help me with that. Um, I, when, I, when I pray to God, I want money to never be an issue again. I just want my bank account to look like a phone number. It's never ending, right? It's just, God is just gonna bless me like crazy. And I sinfully almost want Jesus to be like a genie who's gonna grant my wishes and just ultimately give me everything and anything that I want. I want daily cake, but bread instead of cake or anything else that you wanna throw in here insinuates the idea of something necessary, something mundane, something that we all need on a day-to-day basis, food that nourishes and restores. It's not flashy, it's not big, it's just something that we need. Jesus is telling us to pray for necessities, not luxuries. But I wanna be really careful because he's not saying, don't ask, right? It doesn't mean that we then are kind of afraid to go to the Lord with whatever our heart desires. It doesn't mean that we're going to him and we're just saying, Lord, I only want spiritual things to fill my life, right? Those are good things, but it doesn't mean that we don't ask for very real things in our life. We know this because the verse or the chapter later in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus is going to say to his disciples, following this prayer, ask. Ask and you're gonna receive, seek and you'll find, knock and you'll open the door. And he essentially says, hey, if a father, if a father when his child comes to him says, hey, I want food, he's not gonna give them a snake, right? That would be crazy. In the same way he says, he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more will will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So we do ask and it's okay to ask. And it's actually something that the Lord wants us to do. We should ask and pray for him to provide for every physical and spiritual need. We need bills to be paid. We have mouths to feed. We have anxieties that we should be laying before him to be taken, hearts that need to be at peace, families that need protection and prayer over. He wants us to ask for those things. But ultimately, what he wants us to understand and the reason why it's bread and not just everything else is because he ultimately wants us to not be reliant on the bread itself. He doesn't want us to just pray for things. He wants us to understand and know the giver of the bread, not just the bread. Look at John 6:35. Jesus says this, in uh, John 6:35, he says, I am, what? The bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Now, is he talking about literal physical life? No, he's not saying, well, if you believe in Jesus, then you're never gonna be hungry again and you're never gonna be thirsty again. Um, that would work out for the members meeting we're about to have because you wouldn't have to bring dinner, right? It'd be all good. He's saying that like you're fulfilled you're good, you're okay with him spiritually. In Matthew 6, 32, he also says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided to you. Daily, we come back to Jesus. We come back to the Lord, not just to get things, but to experience the wholeness of who he is to be able to commune with our Lord, to be with our Father. Now, also, if, if you're like me, I, even when I read the, the term daily bread, it still doesn't make me less anxious necessarily. I still don't, even if I can get and come to terms with, with the idea of bread being provided for me, um, I still struggle with that word daily. Like, I want to be secured. I wanna know that not only today is my bread covered, but tomorrow, right? And maybe even for a lifetime. Like if I'm set that when I pray with the Lord, when I convene with him, that he also has tomorrow and next year and five years from now, then I'm cool, right? Like I'm good. If I can make sure that, that everything's guaranteed, bills are gonna be paid because the Lord lets me hit the lottery, or maybe um, I can be anxious about my. He- I don't have to be anxious about my health because I know for a fact that that God has given me a clean bill of health. In prayer, He's just literally given that to me, and I know for a fact I'm going to be okay. I would love that. I'd love to understand and know my five-year plan from the Lord. That would be awesome. And God knows that we have anxieties. He knows we have fears. He understands the human condition and that we walk through this tension and feeling all the time. And that's why Jesus reassures us later in this chapter and verse 25. And this just speaks for itself. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you're going to wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns. Yet, your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you more worth than they? Can any of you add a moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about your clothes? Observe the wildflowers of the fields grow, how they grow. They don't labor or spin or thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like One of these. If that's how God closes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do so much more for you, little of faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? All necessities for us. For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added for you. But look at verse 34. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. He asks us to pray daily to rely upon him, to understand and to know that he holds tomorrow, that he's not shocked or surprised by some sort of medical diagnosis that you may have received. He's not shocked or surprised by the phone call that you may have gotten that just blew up your entire life. He's not shocked or surprised the fact that you lost your job and you're not sure what you're doing. He provides for us grace for today, but also he understands tomorrow. Kevin DeYoung a pastor and author, I'm gonna quote him a bunch in this sermon. Uh, so he pretty much sponsored it um, unofficially and he doesn't know it at all. Uh, but he says this, today's grace is for today's trials. And when tomorrow's trials come, God will have a new grace waiting for you there. Don't expect next year's bread today. Anxiety is living out the future before it gets here. Faith is trusting that when the future comes, our father will be there to give us what we need. Don't start living out the troubles of next Tuesday because you haven't gotten to the grace that we waiting for you next Tuesday. Give us not for all time, but this day, our daily bread. Like a child that consistently goes to their father with needs that need to be met, we go to the father understanding and knowing that he holds all of our worries and fears. And yet he also holds tomorrow. And he will provide for us today what we need for today. He has given that as a gift to us. The father provides his provision is what's necessary for today. He does not do so to produce, or he does so to produce dependence on reliance and what our soul truly needs, which is himself. Our need for daily bread reminds us to ask for our only provider and reminds our anxieties that he has us covered. That's the father's provision. The next thing is the father's forgiveness. That's in verse 12. The father's forgiveness in verse 12. The first part I want to focus on the most, it says this, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. Now, when I hear the word debts in our world today, I immediately go to financial debt, which I think is a good illustration for what Jesus is getting at here. All of us know, at least to some extent, what it feels like to struggle and deal with financial debts. In our world, we have student loans and mortgages and medical bills and credit card debts and a second student loan. And um, it continues to go over and over and over again, more and more and more. They're big, they're weighty, they're burdensome. They feel as if it's like a weight on our back that constantly follows us. And it creates this separation between us and the person that we're borrowing from. Like if you were to go to uh, lunch today and you're eating with your family and someone randomly comes up to you and says, hey, you need to pay back your student loan right now. Cash, boom, give it to me right now. Um, or if someone came up and said, hey, you're paying off your house. We're gonna go over to this place. And if you don't, you're going to jail. What would you do? What, how would you feel? And you cry, laugh, laugh out of fear. Uh, you'd maybe like run, just sprint away as fast as possible. Why? Because it feels just immense. It feels unbelievably unpayable. It's just, it's not happening, right? now. I am receiving the punishment for it. And in the same way, that same feeling, that small feeling in comparison to the relational debt that we have with God, that same feeling is the same amount of debt that Jesus is talking about here in this text. We have an eternal relational debt with the Lord. We are not able to stand in front of him without understanding and acknowledging that debt. How many times have we disobeyed the Lord when he's been faithful to us? How many times have he has he made a way in our life when we ultimately ended up walking opposite? How many times Have we continued to fight against him when he's only opened his arms to us? We've created a relational debt that we cannot repay. We've mistreated, offended, and rejected him at every turn. But there's good news. And the good news is that there's forgiveness. That in Christ, through the gospel, we're able to receive forgiveness from this big, massive amount of relational debt that we stacked up in our life. See, Jesus or God became Jesus in the flesh. God became man and he lived here on earth. He lived a perfect record, accumulated no debt at all whatsoever. And he ultimately ended up dying. He took the punishment for our debt He took it on despite his debtless record, and he ended up coming back to life with a perfect record that can now be given to you and I. And all we must do is admit that we have a filled record, that we have debt that is stacked up over time and we're unable to pay it, and that we wanna make him the ultimate treasure of our life. That's the forgiveness that Jesus is talking about in this text. Forgive us our debts because Jesus has made a way. Now, there are only one of two people in this room. There are people who have had debts forgiven and there are people that don't. And if you're a person that hasn't had your debt forgiven, again, the good news is this is free. It doesn't matter what time. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter how much that debt has stacked up. This is freely available to you. and All you must do is ask. And we would love to be able to do that for you, that if you want to find a team member out at the wall or fill out a connect card, we'd love to help you take that step. But this is freely available to you. There are also people here in this room that have had forgiven debt, but you feel like you've stacked up more debt despite the point of when you were forgiven. You're a Christian. You believe in, in Jesus. And at one point you had a proclamation of faith and you've been saved and you've, you've, you know, like, I don't, I don't have a record anymore. I'm able to be with him. But over time, as your walk with Christ has continued further, you feel like you've stacked up greater debt with the Lord, that you're unable to be with him because of that debt. Maybe old habits crept back in. Maybe anger and bitterness has filled your life. The lack of self-control that, that you hoped was under control has now sprung back up and you have issues of lust and whatever else, uh, self-control issues that pop up in your life. And you feel like that you can't convene with the Lord because of that debt. The good news is you can't. The gospel is just as good for you as it is for the worst of sinners with the most that. And when you enter into prayer, you may feel like you're gonna be condemned. Maybe you can't even be before the Lord. You can't even sit with him and, and, and talk with him because you just, man, you feel like a failure that you messed up and it's all over for you. The good news is that it's not. And Kevin DeYoung says this better than I could ever put it. He says, Jesus wants us to relate to God, not just as a judge, someone that's gonna condemn us, but as a father, You wouldn't go back to the judge to admit another mistake, but you would go to your father to say you're sorry. If I sin as a Christian, I should not fear condemnation for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I have disrupted the father-child relationship I enjoy with God. That's why I should ask for forgiveness, not to be justified or to have my debt forgiven again not to be justified all over again, but because I have made a mess of the most important relationship in my life. The prayer, forgive us our debts, is not the cry of a frightened litigant, but of a loving child. Forgiveness is available to the worst of sinners and the most seasoned of saints. This is why we pray it no matter who we are or what we believe. So then, if you'll notice, right after this statement, there's also another one. He says, "Not only, not only do we have our debts forgiven, but also what? We also forgive our debtors." Now, again, honestly, I would love to focus on the first part and then move away from the second, right? I would love to I love being forgiven. For me to have to go show that forgiveness, that's a step that seems too far right? Why would Jesus include this? Why is he putting this in and and just kind of bringing us down with the fact that now we have to go forgive our enemies? That seems terrible. Jesus is trying to get us to understand that when grace and forgiveness, when our debt is fully understood and we fully understand our forgiveness, it has to be given to others. When we truly understand How crazy it was that he forgave us for what we've done, the ways we've think, what we've acted like. When he's forgiven us for that, we just feel so overjoyed that we have to go share it with others. And he reiterates this in a very sharp way at the end of the Lord's Prayer. If you just look down a little bit in verse 14, he says, "For, uh, for if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. Then he says, but if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. And then later on um, in Matthew 18, after the disciples had asked, how many times are we supposed to forgive people? I mean, can it just be like one time? And Jesus is like, no, it's infinite. You always are forgiving people. He shares a story about uh, a parable about an unforgiving servant. And the parable goes something like uh, a king had a bunch of people that owed him money and he freed them from having that money owed. And then one of those people that had been freed from their debt, who had, were able to go out and live their life freely, went to someone else that owned them money and ultimately ended up going harder on them than even the king had in the first place. He ends up asking for his money to be given back. The king hears about it And gets furious and in verse 33 of chapter 18, it says this, shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything back that he owed. And it says in verse 35, same kind of idea in verse 14 of six, He says, so also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from his heart. That's harsh. That's sharp. That's not gonna be made into a veggie tale story, right? (laughs) That's not something you're leading with when talking with uh, someone that's learning more about Christianity. That is really weighty. And what it can feel like, our natural application from a text like that, it can feel like, man, well, if I want to be saved, if, if I want to be able to, to be right with God, then I need to forgive everyone. I just need to go around and just say, I'm sorry. And I, I forgive you. And I love you. And I need to call up someone that wronged me back in third grade. I need to, whatever it is, like, I just need to make sure I'm restored because surely I don't want to receive this punishment. And this is a kind of a brief caveat, but it's still attached to Grace alone by faith alone, according to Ephesians 2, is the only thing that saves you. Forgiveness or your ability to forgive does not save you. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying the way that you end up receiving ultimate forgiveness from me is going around and forgiving everybody that has wronged you in some way, shape, or form. Jesus is giving us a sobering indicator that we should really look at our souls. That if we have been forgiven, We know that we are fully not understanding and trusting the gospel when we live in bitterness, when we live in anger, when we live in this constant state of unforgiveness. We know that this isn't a reality that we're truly grasping because if we did, we would go and share love and forgiveness to other people. So the prayer is, Lord help me because it doesn't mean it's not a struggle. It doesn't mean that, man, I'm saved, I love Jesus, therefore it's easy to forgive this person that's really, really wronged me. People that have stagged me in the back, people that have gossiped about me, people that have maybe even physically hurt me. It's not easy in any way. But the Lord will provide the grace and means be able to do so. The father has forgiven and cleared our debt by the person and work of Jesus. We can comfortably be with him because of that in a relationship with him. And then we share that same grace. We share that same thing with other people. That's the father's forgiveness. The the third thing, these next two points are kind of meshed together in some way, but it's the father's guidance. The Father's guidance. We see this in the beginning of 13, uh, it's kind of 13a. It says, and do not bring us into temptation. John Calvin, a theologian, described the idea of temptation super helpfully. Um, He uh, essentially illustrated it as walking on a tightrope. And temptation is kind of on one of two sides. Uh, Some temptations are on the right. some Some temptations are on the left. And we walk this tightrope in our relationship with the Lord, trying not to fall into the right or into the left. And some of us have tendencies towards one way or the other. He says that on the right come riches and power and honor, which tempt us into the sin of thinking that we don't need God. On the left come poverty, disease, contempt, affliction, which tempt us to despair and become angry at the Lord. And so we walk in our Christian life as we are becoming sanctified, we walk this tightrope attempting to become more and more like Jesus, trying not to fall from the left or into the right. And it's a daily struggle. And so we pray that the Lord helps us in the midst of our temptation to not fall away and allow these things to take us over. The natural question or questions that we have as we're walking this tightrope is, A, where is the Lord? Like in the midst of, me, of my walk, as I'm trying to resist temptation, and where where is the Lord in all of this? How is he helping? How is he guiding me in the midst of my temptation? A lot of times we can begin to believe that maybe the Lord's on the other end that he's on the other end of this tightrope and we're trying to walk it and he's championing us on. He's like, come on, you can make it, you can do it. He's encouraging us on the other end, hoping that we make it and not sure um, if we will. And he really doesn't understand all the the fears and the perils of the tightrope because uh, he's never really walked it before, but he's safe, he's good. We can begin to believe in the Lord like that, but that's not the reality. We had a God who walked that same tightrope as us, made it to the other side, and then walks back to grab our hand and lead us back to the end. We know this because in Matthew chapter four, Jesus willingly, God in human form, willingly went out to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, by his own volition. And he goes out there and Satan begins to, tempt him in the same exact three areas that we all struggle with, areas of power, areas of pleasure, and areas of pride. He begins to espouse to him all these biblical texts to kind of try to get him to buy into it. And Jesus undergoes all of that so that he knows what happens on that tightrope. So that means, if that's true, if Jesus has undergone this, That means that God, creator God, our father knows what it's like to struggle with trying to climb up the corporate ladder and also balance family life, trying to make our own lives stand out and be the most powerful things that we possibly can make it. He knows what that's like to be tempted with that. He knows what it's like to, to struggle with indulging ourselves and having the desire to use substances to, to try to drown out the difficulty of life. He, he knows what that's like. He has felt that. He has been there. He didn't give in, but he was there. He, he knows what it's like to struggle with the comparison of others and ma- wanting to make it seem as if we're a step ahead of everyone else and that we, are the, are, we look good and we, we have our life together. He knows what that's. Like, he's not just giving us a pat on the back and saying, man, you're doing a good job. He has walked our shoes before. He has empathetically and sympathetically felt the things that you are going through. So we can glory in that. The second question is, what is he guiding us to? Because a lot of times we also on this sanctification journey, we can begin to believe, well, he's guiding me into kind of this image of Christianity, this form, this set of behaviors. He's wanting me to be driven into the law of the Lord. He wants me to accomplish and notch off all the different Christian things that, that fill our life. He wants us to uh, smile. He wants us to look good attend church every Sunday, go to Chick-fil-A weekly. He wants us to have a great family life. He wants us to to fit in to this set of behaviors so that he can approve us. And there's not anything wrong with those things. Those are all amazing things. But ultimately, he's trying to not just lead you into a set of behaviors. He's trying to lead you to himself. He's welcoming you into his character, who he is, no matter who you are, and no matter what you've done. Look at Matthew 11:28 through30. Jesus says, "Come to me." He doesn't say, "Come to uh, this idea of, of yourself. Come to this religious standard." He says, "Come to me." All of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and I will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus tells us to come to him with a burden, with everything, with all of that debt strapped on our back. We come to him. We enter into his presence. He's not looking for you to take that off and try to clean yourself up and then come before him. He wants you to come before him, to be with him, to sit and to know who he is, not just a standard of behavior or set of rules. The father's guidance is freely given in the midst of the worst struggles and the most tempting habits. The grace needed for today will always be given to help you walk and ultimately fall into the arms of Jesus himself. The last aspect is the father's protection. The father's protection. We see this in uh, the second half of verse 13. Now, when I, when I see uh, or maybe have someone ask for protection in prayer, my first mind, and this is probably because I grew up in church and maybe this is more of, Uh, from the area that I'm from. I'm from uh, Southern Ohio. So maybe this terminology is more from there. But whenever I see someone ask for protection, uh, the immediate thing that I think of is someone praying for a hedge of protection Around them. Have you ever heard that before? And I always imagined, especially as a kid, I'd imagine that God was just building foliage around someone, right? Just like hedges are filling their life. And I also like to believe that one day someone was praying this so hard for someone and then hedges just showed up to their home. They didn't even know where it came from. Um, this is my own weird humor. But, but I actually found out through this sermon, who knew that uh, that prayer is actually out of Job where uh, Satan goes to the Lord and says, hey, you have a hedge of protection around him. I didn't know that until really this sermon, right? Maybe my Sunday school teacher told me and I wasn't paying attention, but uh, I, I, I think of that every single time I look at this text and the idea is the same. He says, but deliver us from the evil one, protect us, build this up, protect our lives. The, the evil one reference is a reference to Satan. It's a reference to um, the, the person of Satan who is constantly fighting against the Lord. And the Bible always describes Satan as someone who is actively, not passively, working against the Lord and his church. In fact, in John chapter 10, 10 uh, or verse 10, Jesus describes Satan as a thief that has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And in 1 Peter 5, 8, he's described as a lion that's literally looking around for people to devour. When we become Christians, we don't just enter into a new life. We don't just enter into a new community. We also enter into a battlefield. We enter into a life that is filled with an enemy that is constantly looking to take both physical and spiritual attacks at us. One Dutch theologian said it this way. He said, whoever has God for his friend will find Satan to be his enemy. We're constantly in this spiritual battle, both physical sometimes and also spiritual. Now, I'm honest, I'm not, I don't really feel like most of my life is a battlefield. Especially on days like yesterday when it's really nice and you're enjoying your Saturday and everything's good, and you have friends and family, and it doesn't feel like a battlefield. It doesn't feel like shots are going overhead. In fact, my life's pretty comfortable. I don't feel like I'm constantly fighting. And I think that's exactly what Satan wants from me. It's what he wants from us. He wants us to think that we're not in a battle, to not be prepared, to not need protection because we're okay. Again, Kevin DeYoung says this, he says, most of our lives are too serious about casual things and too casual about serious things. He says, we fret about clothes and calories, but we, fo- we fuss about diets and home decor. Our whole week can be ruined by a sporting event gone wrong. We are supremely concerned about these relatively unimportant matters. And yet we will start each new day as if we are in no spiritual danger, as if we had no enemy. If we were to pray for daily provision and daily pardon, then we also must pray for daily protection. How many times do we go about each day thinking that there is no battle, blissfully ignorant of the danger that we will face? The scary news is that we're under attack, that we need protection, that we are constantly in need of the Lord's help. The good news is the Lord isn't frightened. The Lord is powerful enough to protect and defeat the powers of Satan. The Lord will be able to keep us. In 1 John 4, 4, it says that the one who is in you, Jesus, is greater than the one who is in the world, which is Satan. So we can take heart. We don't have to be afraid because our Lord, our God ultimately protects us and he's not afraid. He ultimately will end up defeating the powers of Satan and evil forever. So we can rest and we can trust in him. We pray for the father's protection in both spiritual and physical ways. The power in the fight against sin and Satan is held in our father's hands. The Father's character allows us to rely on and ask for his provision, his forgiveness, his guidance, his protection, and prayer. So the question is, what do we do with all this? As we wrap up, how do we apply this method? How do we apply the Lord's prayer to our daily life? How do we take this hexagon and then move it into our life? I think there's two different ways that we can do so. So these are just my helpful tips. You can utilize this in whatever way possible. Hopefully they're helpful. But the first one is that we uh, walk around the Lord's Prayer. So you can either do this internally or also maybe physically. So internally, maybe literally like choose, uh, start at the top, move around the Father's Prayer or the, the Lord's Prayer, start with the Father's character and just write down different notes about each one. So write out the Father's character, write out that his will is done, write out what you need provided for, write out what you need forgiveness for. Literally just write it out. If you're like me, whenever I go into prayer, my mind is all over the place. So this kind of gives me an opportunity to kind of center my mind and and just write out little characteristics, write out little things uh, on, on a piece of paper. And maybe even if you want to do this externally, maybe you can even physically walk this out. That if you set each one of these as a landmark on your daily walk, you could kind of pray and walk to one landmark. Maybe a fire hydrant is the father's character. And then another signpost is the father's kingdom and so on and so forth. And you just walk it every day and you just pray. And once you make it to that one, you end that. And then you go to the next one. You can literally walk around the Lord's prayer. The second way to apply this is just to maybe even just pick one aspect every day. So take the father's character. And on Mondays, you pray the father's character. And that's just uh, you sitting down and just thinking, and maybe it's only for a couple minutes, just praying out about the Father's character. Maybe you set it as a re- reminder on your phone that an alarm will come on and then you see, it says the Father's character and you just pray it out loud. Maybe you put Post-it notes on your mirrors so that you remember. And on Monday, you do that. Tuesday, you do something different and so on and so forth. There's six of them. So that means that you have a grace day if you, or you can pray whatever you want on the seventh day. No um, No judgment. Uh, But you literally just pick something each day and then you pray. That's the way that we can apply the Lord's prayer. And ultimately, um, as the band makes their way forward and we wrap into prayer, I I just want us to remember that God doesn't want our perfect prayer. He wants you. doesn't matter how you say certain things, doesn't matter if you mess up. Sometimes we may stumble or we may fall or we may say something weird or maybe we didn't mean it and we're just trying to take it back. He doesn't care. Like a father who listens to his child that constantly is messing up with their words and doesn't know how to convey their feelings. And that same way, he listens to us. So you can follow this and it's great, but no and understand that there is grace And ultimately, he just wants you. Let me pray for us as we wrap this morning. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for specific texts like these that that really do give us helpful methods to be able to draw near to you. I pray that you reveal your will in our life. God, help us to see how you have provided for us in many different ways. May you provide for us. Lord, forgive us for areas where we've sinned and fallen away. May you give us new life for those that haven't experienced you before and want to be able to experience what it's like to have their debt paid for all eternity. God, may they do that today. Father, I pray that you guide us to yourself. Help us to walk away from temptation. Help those that are Christians that are walking through their sanctification right now and just really struggling with following after you because of something that's popped up. God, may they see that you are guiding them to yourself and that you wanna take on their burdens. God, would you protect us this week, both physically and spiritually? May you awaken us to the spiritual realities of what's going on in our life so that we may be prepared to take on whatever lies ahead. God, thank you for you. In your name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing out these last songs?